Morning, everybody. Morning. My name is Jenny, and I'm the interim rector here at Emmanuel, and I'm very, very glad to be with you this morning. Uh, we're going to continue our journey in the spiritual disciplines. Uh, first, I'm going to say a prayer for us, and then, then we'll jump in. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your presence. We ask you, Lord, that you would take all of the things that these people in this room represent in the rest of their lives, all the people that they represent as well, Lord, and would you just remind us that you hold all of us and all of these things in the palm of your hand, that you really are sovereign over us. What a special grace it is to come into this room and say very true things together and to sing true things over ourselves and over this world. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning as Jesus prayed for us too, that we would hear your words and see what you want us to see and leave here a little bit more like Jesus. I ask you, God, to give, give me the words that you would like to say this morning and let everything else just fall away. And pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. As I said, our, uh, we've been in this a series of spiritual disciplines uh, for the last few weeks in the season of Lent. This is what we've been talking about. We ventured out of the, the lectionary to take some time to talk about these disciplines. Um, and the thing about the disciplines is they're not uh, meant to make us like better boys and girls, right? Um, they're not like things to just like put on our to-do list so that we can be better people, but rather like the whole purpose of them is to reorient ourselves and our lives and our practices towards the person of Jesus. The mistake we make a lot of times with things like spiritual disciplines is we make them about ourselves, right? I'm going to fast so that I'm not so tied to these things. And it's all kind of about like Ginny-centered, you know, the spiritual disciplines. And what we need to remember is that the spiritual disciplines are not about us actually at all. They are about Jesus. They're about orienting us towards him. Um, so today, we're going to talk about worship as a spiritual discipline. And worship's just a little bit different than the other ones we're going to talk about um, because uh, worship, I think, is really the heart of the spiritual disciplines. So it's a discipline in and of itself, but it's really the heart of all the, all the disciplines that we're talking about. It's why we do them, because we want to worship God. Because Jesus is worthy of our whole lives and we must be willing to do whatever it takes to make our lives about him, that's why we do disciplines, right? That's why we do those things. So we're going to talk about worship today. Uh, worship means assigning worth to something. So you can worship really anything, as long as you are like assigning worth to it and giving it sort of like your energy and your thanks and your praise, right? Um, so when we give worth to God, that's, that's when we're, we're worshiping God. When we worship, we're saying God is worthy, worthy of our time, uh, for you to even come in this room on a Sunday morning on a beautiful day like it is outside. You're saying God is worthy of this space in my life this morning. Um, our time, God is worthy of our money, um, God is worthy of our attention. For all of those reasons, we give God worship. Thinking of worship as a spiritual discipline means just like acknowledging that there needs to be some intentionality in our lives around this act of, of worship. That like we can be people of worship, but unless we're like really thinking about that and weighing the things in our life and asking sort of what our heart posture is, um, that it's easy for that kind of discipline to slip away from us. 
Worship is not, not a to-do, you know, like, like fasting sort of is. It's not a seasonal thing. We're not like, well, I'm worshiping for the season of Lent, and then I'll be done when it's over. You know, it's like the worship is the sort of thing that lasts throughout our days, throughout our life. It's different. It's different than the other ones. Worship is a verb. Um, when we, we worship when we sing about God, we sing to God. We worship when we pray. We worship when we read our Bibles, so on and so forth. But worship is a posture, too. Um, it's the posture that makes the verbs happen in our life. Worship is the posture of living to know and love and honor God. Worship takes the sort of ordinary things of our life and puts it in the light of God and reveals it as something new, as something better. Worship is when we remember that Jesus is king, that God is sovereign over us despite what our circumstances may look like. A posture of worship is recognizing that there is a reality that is bigger and more beautiful and more wonderful than ours is, and we're invited to step into that when we worship together. Worship happens when we choose the perspective of heaven, when we let Jesus sort of speak a better word over our lives than the world does. Um, you can worship all the time. You can engage in worship in many different ways. Did you know that you can worship when you're on a run? Someone in the first service went, no, because running's horrible. But you can. You can worship on a run, right? For example, running is something that I like to do. It's definitely a discipline for me. It's not out of the joy of my heart. But when I'm on a run, like, I am trying to thank God that I have a body that can run, you know, and that I can enjoy the things that God has created in that way, and I can thank, thank God for all of those things. Did you know that you can worship with your money? Um, the way that you spend your money can be a way of engaging in worship in your life. I, uh, every month, about once a month is when I look at our budget because I can't possibly do it more than that. Um, but when I do that, one of the things that I do when I'm looking at our budget, looking what our, where our money goes, is um, I take a second to like worship God, um, especially when I'm looking at the, like my tithes and the money that goes to the missionaries that we support. I want to like put that in front of God and say, thank you, God, because if I don't like acknowledge that that money is leaving my bank account, which is super convenient for me, um, to give to the Lord in that way. If I'm not acknowledging it, however, and like giving praise to God for it, then it's just a transaction. It's just like the rest of my bills, you know? So I want to take that space to really, to really worship God. We can worship God when we eat. You ever have a meal that like you can only thank Jesus for? I've had many of them in my life. Um, sometimes like the, the smallest of, of things can be, can be reasons and ways that we worship God. We take those things that are wonderful and beautiful. And instead of saying, you are the thing that deserves all of my worship and praise, you know, we look through that thing and say like, man, God really deserves all the praise for this, this thing. That's what a life of worship looks like. So we're going to talk the rest of this uh, sermon about um, about this posture of worship. And it's like not a super practical sermon because I think that worship is just a little bit different than the things that we've been, been talking about. And I, I'm going to use a bunch of like images and stories in the rest of this sermon because I think that like when we talk about worship, this thing that is like kind of you know, literally otherworldly. How do we communicate it in a way that makes sense to us? And I think like for things like this story just does the best, uh, the best job of that. So my first image, you ready, um, is from Stranger Things. Any fans in here? Here's how I like to think about worship is um, that we sort of all live in the, the upside down. 
that we live in a space that like looks a lot like what it should look like, except it's darker and different. It's um, like overgrown and like falling apart and like all of these things. And we can live in this world um, and we can like maybe over time be convinced that this is the real world. This is just what reality looks like. Or we can say to ourselves in worship, like we can remember that there's another side of things, that there's like a more real, more beautiful reality that we can step into. And the problem when we don't worship is we begin to really believe that where we are is the realest thing. And so in worship, God invites us to take more of the perspective of heaven, invites us um, into that reality. But it's really our inclination to stay here, right? To like stay vertical. And that's like the human problem is that we are given this gift of a God who loves us and is continually moving towards us. And yet over and over again, we choose other things. We choose to like put our worship and our praise in other things because what we can see makes more sense to us. I think worship is hard for a lot of us because um, we're post-enlightenment people, right? Like we deal in verifiability. We like to prove things. And as Christians, as particularly people who worship, we can't prove that something's happening. Like you can all sing the song sovereign over us. You're not proving that God is sovereign, but you're choosing it. You're choosing to believe it. That's what's wonderful about worship. The Christian life of faith is the conviction of things not seen. That's what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Worship invites us to say, I can't see the full picture but I know someone who can. And for that reason, I will give that person all of the thanks and the praise and invite that reality into my life in different ways. So I want to look at a story together of an example of how we so easily forget the reality of God and how it relates to worship, how we can begin to look to sort of the things around us and forget that there's something bigger and more wonderful than what's, what's around us. So it's from Exodus 32, I love the stories of Exodus. I think they do such a beautiful job of like giving us a picture of what it's like to be um, just terribly human, you know? Um, so God has set his people free from slavery in Egypt and they have walked through the Red Sea and they have sung their songs of victory and they have made it out into the wilderness and now they are moving towards this mountain called Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was known as sort of this place, like a special place of God's presence. And Moses goes up with a few people and gets the law of God. And it's this like very wonderful, beautiful thing. But then Moses goes back up by himself to receive instructions for how to make the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is this uh, temple, but it's able to move through the wilderness with people, um, with God's people. So instead of God building one singular temple, them building one temple so that they could worship God there, God knows that they need to go, and he wants to be with them every step of the way. Here's the funny thing. It is incredibly intricate. Um, God is not playing around with the tabernacle. So Moses goes up this mountain by himself to receive how to, how to build this tabernacle, and he has gone for eight chapters, which is a very long time. So by chapter 32, the people have absolutely lost it, and we're, we're, that's where we're going to read. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come make gods for us who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, 
Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it into a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. They're thinking, what could possibly be taking Moses so long, you know? Like he must have been swallowed up in a cloud or maybe he died. But either way, like clearly we're on our own here. What this text reveals is that our attention in seasons of uncertainty turns to giving worth to other things other than God in those times. It's a lot easier to feel God and worship God when things feel right in our lives, when the tangible stuff makes sense, when Moses is around, as it were. And then when he's gone, we begin to wonder, like, where is God in all of this? Where's the evidence? Where's the tangible stuff? Where can I, like, put my finger and say, that's God in my life? We turn to worshiping other things. We turn our attention to other things. Some of us stop coming to church, you know. Um, maybe stop reading our Bibles or praying because things just don't make sense anymore. But here's the thing about worship. Worship is a gift to you in those seasons because what worship does is it turns our attention to what is actually real. Rather than turning to like the golden calves that we make, what we ought to do in seasons where things don't feel right is turn our attention to God so God can remind us of how good he is. And how he is sovereign over our lives. I want to read another story from Isaiah 46. It's more about idols. Um, this one is about two idols in particular. Babylonian gods uh, named Bel and Nebo. So if you need any baby names, you're welcome. Um, don't name your kids after Babylonian gods. Um, so... I really love this text. It's one of my favorites. It's poetry. It's so beautiful. I, I wish, you know, we read, read the, the poetry of Isaiah more in church. But um, so this po poem in particular is God speaking. Um, it's God saying, here's what life is like when you worship these idols. Here's what your life ought to be like worshiping me. So here's what it says. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and cattle. These things you carry are loaded as burdens on weary animals. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. Even when you turn gray, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. What's happening in this text is God is um, making a point to say, like, you've been traveling in and out of Babylon as the people of God, and you've been witnessing gods being, like, pulled on wagons behind people as they're moving into these new spaces, and they're worshiping these things and having to, like, bear the load of them and carry them into the different places in their life that they're going. And God is saying, isn't this just a perfect picture what it's like to be with me? You don't have to carry me anywhere. In fact, I will carry you. When we worship, we are 
brought into life in such a way, like capital L life, where we can like allow God to be God in our lives. Some of us have been like carrying around gods for so long and it's so heavy. And what Jesus wants to tell us is say like, lay down these things. Let me carry you instead. There's a scene in the last battle, which is the final book in the Chronicles of Narnia series that I think explains this like worship inclination in us so well, where we um, are sort of, when we, when we don't worship and we kind of like put ourselves in the dark places and lose perspective on what life is really like in the, in the kingdom of God. Um, so Narnia is being transformed by Aslan, the Christ figure in the stories. And um, he's inviting everyone like further up and further in into this heavenly place. And um, there's a, a small group of people, uh, they are dwarves, and they um, are unwilling to sort of see this reality that, that Aslan is bringing into being because they have been tricked and they have been um, abused and they have been uh, just pushed against for so long that in their cynicism, they can no longer like see the reality of what is coming into being and they're in the dark place. So let's read a section from that book together. Aslan, said Lucy through her tears, could you, will you do something for these poor dwarves? Dearest, said Aslan, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. He came close to the dwarfs and gave a low growl, low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarfs said to one another, hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They won't take us in again. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly, a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices. And each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking eagerly enough. But it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of thing you might find at a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay. And the other said he got bit by an old, got a, a bit of an old turnip. And a third said he found a raw cabbage leaf. And they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. But very soon every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had. And they started grabbing and snatching and went on quarreling till in a few minutes there was a free fight. And all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or, or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said... Well, at any rate, there's no humbug here. We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarves are for the dwarves. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds. Yet they are in that prison, so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. And I think that is such a good picture for us of what this can look like is that we are so afraid of thinking the wrong thing, of be take, being uh, given hope that doesn't really last, um, that we, we're, being, we're unwilling to be taken in by those things, by the, those visions from God, that reality of God. And let me tell you something that's like really true and wonderful about worship. Is it's not necessary for God's happiness or God's honor or God's glory 
God deserves it for all of those reasons, but it's not necessary for them. Like the whole world could stop worshiping tomorrow and that wouldn't end the glory of God or the honor and praise of God. Here's the wonderful thing about who God is, and I cannot believe that like this is who we get to worship, is that God gives us something like worship because he deserves it, but also because it's a gift to us. We down here worship God in the same breath that we like give God all of the glory that God deserves. We get to see into something more real. We get to become more of the people that God has meant us to be. We get to like peer more deeply into what it looks like to be a joyful and hopeful person. That worship actually can be for our benefit. Like how wonderful God is to give us that gift. So I'll end with talking about Revelation. Because I don't think that you can really talk about worship properly without talking about the book of Revelation. Um, anyone like the book of Revelation? One person, Barbara. Um, that's right. <laughs> I love Revelation. Um, I used to not, but um, Eugene Peterson helped me really like it. Um, and uh, if you want to read his book, it's called Reverse Thunder. It like changed, changed things for me. Um, but I think when we talk about worship, we have to talk about the book of Revelation because uh, in Revelation is, is uh, John's or Jesus' disciple, John, and he is uh, seeing all of these crazy, wonderful visions. And what he's witnessing is the worship that's going on in heaven. And he is writing a letter in this book, to his churches, to the seven churches, as it says. He's the pastor of these churches. And he's seeing these visions, and Jesus says, these visions are for the churches. So Jesus is, comes and says all of these things. And so it's, um, it seems like all these visions are like a future-oriented thing. But rather, when Jesus says these visions are for the churches, they're for the churches right then in that day. Like right, right then, as the, he spoke those words, they were being written down to go out to the churches. So something I think we get wrong about Revelation is this idea that it's like it's only a future reality or even worse that like it's code for a future reality, right? Like it's some sort of code we have to crack in order to understand like what the future is going to look like. When that great and glorious future is actually breaking into us all around, that's the whole point of Revelation is to say this thing that you're looking to, that you're hoping for, all of that is breaking in even now. And Jesus says like this is important. And then John goes on to write after the first chapter, which we're going to look at in a second. He goes on to write letters to these churches, each one specifically. And what he's doing in this, in this book in that way is he's saying to them, like rebuking them, like here are the ways that you have fallen away from where you ought to have been. Um, and here's the way you can step into who you're meant to be through worship. And now what has happened is these churches, the reason they're sort of like falling away is because they're under incredible stress, um, trials, persecution in the world in which they were living. So there are these churches that have just been birthed and they're starting to like worship God and be together and like do the thing, you know, like be Christians. And then all of a sudden they're under immense persecution and the people they know that they like worship with last week are like dead now. And they're starting to lose perspective. And they're wondering, like, what's going on? Can God really be sovereign if all of this is happening? And under all of this immense pressure and terrible stuff that's going on, Jesus comes to John and he says, I have a message for the churches. Write it down. So let's read it. 
what's happening in this very first chapter that I want to read to you. It's not on the screen, which I was going to change in between services, but I think it's helpful to close our eyes and just sort of listen. Is to these sad and suffering churches. The very first thing John does is he writes down the person that he sees. He writes down this vision of Jesus. Before he says what Jesus says to the churches, he writes down what he sees. And I think that's because these people needed a like real vision of who this person was that they were worshiping. That is not a, a weak person. Um, it's, not a, it's not a God that cannot overcome their circumstances. And so he tells them this, this vision, which we'll read. You can close your eyes if that is helpful to you. I, John, your brother, who share with you in, in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze and refined as in a furnace. His voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want to talk through this vision with the couple minutes we have left. I want to talk through this vision because I want you two to have like this vision of who Jesus is and what all of these things represent, um, what they reveal about who Jesus is, this person who came to these people, these churches in a time of great suffering and trials. So he's clothed in a long robe with a golden sash across him. What does this mean? Um, these are priestly garments. So John noting that Jesus is wearing these things is he's saying, this person is a priest, this person that I'm seeing. And the biblical idea of a priest is a bridge between us and God. And so the very first thing that John wants these churches to know is that the, Jesus still has his job. That like even in heaven, in his resurrected body, Jesus is still the mediator between us and God. Jesus is still working for us to become reconciled to who God is. He's still making a way where there was no way. Where like fear... Um, may stand in our way, Jesus is making a way through those things. He says his head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. And what he's trying to tell us with this image is that like in the same way that Jesus like demands purity from us, um, we can be sure that he is pure. This whiteness that he wants for us, um, he himself is. And so he doesn't demand things from us that he isn't already. He can see in us through himself, through his own purity, what he wants from us in our lives. And then we see the eyes, right? The eyes have fire. And that is, that is that purity making its way into us. When we gaze into the eyes of Jesus, they burn something in us and make us more real, more holy. He says his feet were like burnished bronze, refi refined as in a furnace. And this is supposed to hearken us back to the story in 
uh, Daniel. Do you remember the crazy vision that King Nebuchadnezzar has? Do you remember this? Um, where he's like very, very tall, towering image made of all different kinds of metals. But this image, this huge, massive thing, its feet were made of a mixture of clay and iron. And one single rock rolls down the hill and knocks the whole thing down. And what John wants us to see with this vision of Jesus is his feet are like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. This towering image of Jesus is a sure foundation, strong and trustworthy, tested by fire, cannot be knocked down. He says his voice was like the sound of many waters. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't first tell us the words of Jesus. He tells us what his voice sounded like because he wants us to know that Jesus is not timid about what he has to say. Um, his voice is thundering. So when we hear the voice of Jesus, we can know that it is a, a strong voice. He says, in his right hand, he held the seven stars, which I think is my favorite part. Because in the ancient world, in ancient art, what a person's holding in their right hand is sort of what they wield, you know? Like it's like what their, what their life is about, what their job is. So a shepherd would be holding a, a staff in their right hand and a soldier would be holding a sword. And what does Jesus hold? The cosmos, the stars, that in the palm of his hand is not only these seven churches, but the entire world. It says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Because Jesus does not wield the sword in his right hand, um, but in his words. His words are stronger than any weapon ever could be. And his face is like the sun shining with full force, which is supposed to hearken us back to the blessing of Aaron that says, Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Jesus' face, lest we think that we are trapped in like a dark place forever, is like the sun shining on us with the full blessing and grace of God. This is who we worship, and he makes all the difference. Eugene Peterson says, the difference between St. John the prisoner, which he was in prison on this island, and St. John the pastor is Christ. And that is true for you and for me, that the person that we could be um, is made better by the person who Jesus is, that when we worship him, we come into like a vision of who God has created us to be and who God is and how God wants to work in our life. Worship is like a vision changer. It makes us bring heaven to earth in these small ways of worshiping him, just sort of like let the veil come open. So um, last thing I want to do is have us all stand and join together in the reading from Revelation 5. So as John continues to have... Hello, did I do it? There we go. John continues to have this vision that he's writing down and sending to the churches. And um, he gets to like peer into heaven. So he sees this vision of Jesus and then he peers into heaven and sees like all that's happening in the heavenly places. And this is a gift to the church, not just the churches then, but the church to us. And so when we worship, I think it's important to remember that we are joining with something that's already going on all the time in the heavenly places. And so I wanted to join those voices together this morning as the church. So we're going to read Revelation 5. And when you see the bold, and I'll raise my hands too, that's uh, your part. You're going to say uh, those things and join with the songs of heaven this morning. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back and sealed with seven seals. 
I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slaughtered, and by your blood you ransomed for God, saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and they numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice. Worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now we'll join together. And as I like to say, say the most true things we'll say all week proclaim these things over us, confessing our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Now we'll take a moment to confess our sins silently before God, and then we'll join together in praying the confession.